0: The president is not our teacher, our tutor, our guide, or ruler. He does not command us, we command him. We serve neither him nor his vision. It is not his job or his prerogative to redefine custom, law, and beliefs, to appropriate industries, To seize the country, as it were, by the shoulders, so as to impose, by force of theatrical charisma, his justice on 300 million others. It is neither his job nor his prerogative to shift the power of decision away from the people to the acolytes
1: of his choosing. That is then-Congressman Mike Pence in 2010 talking about the American Presidency taking thinly veiled jabs at then-president Barack Obama, in a speech at Hillsdale College, a Christian institution based on classic American conservatism, funded by hundreds of thousands of dollars of money from big conservative donors like the Kochs. Those are all values Pence shares or says he shares. He's a Christian. He's a conservative. He's received significant support from the Kochs. Pence continued his speech. Power is an instrument of fatal consequence.
0: It is confined no more readily than quicksilver and escapes good intentions as easily as air flows through mesh. Therefore, those who are entrusted with it must educate themselves in
1: self-restraint. Now, here's Pence in 2016, after being announced as Donald Trump's running mate.
0: You know, I come to this moment deeply humbled, but with a grateful heart. Grateful to God for his amazing grace. Grateful to my wonderful wife, Karen, and our three incredible kids, Michael, Charlotte, and Audrey. And grateful to this builder, this fighter, this patriotic American who has set aside a legendary career in business to build a stronger America, Donald J. Trump. And when I got this call last Wednesday, I could only think of that ancient question Who am I, O oh Lord? And who is my family that you have brought us this far? So let me try and answer that question for a
1: few minutes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. Mr. Vice President, we do the explaining of who people are around here. So, who is Mike Pence? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast where we examine power by telling the story of people who have it. This week, Mike Pence. Pence was born in Indiana, 1959, one of six children. His parents were good Catholic Democrats. But years later, Pence shed that identity.
0: I'm a pretty basic guy. I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a
1: Republican. In that order. Notice how he says Christian there, not Catholic. And he had Democratic parents. Let's go through how he became that Christian, conservative, Republican, a line he'd use over and over to describe himself.
2: The Pence family, um, they're actually from Chicago. They, they moved down to southern Indiana
1: in the 50s, in the mid 50s. That was Tom Lo Bianco, a journalist who has covered Pence from his time in Indiana all the way to the White House. And he wrote the first Pence biography, Piety and Power. His other three brothers, Greg,
2: Ed, and Tom, in that order, are very athletic. They're rambunctious, they're rowdy. And, and Pence is more reserved. He's very quiet. And to be honest with you, and he, he says this, he, he called himself the, uh, a real pumpkin in a pickle patch. He was a big kid grown up. He struggled with his weight in, in school. And there's a moment after his sophomore year of high school and coming into his junior year when it's, it's really remarkable. He goes to a doctor and the doctor gives him this regimen and he loses 55 pounds. And he comes back junior year and he says that, you know, people who, who, who he knew didn't know who he was. <laughs> Nobody knew who he was. But this is really the birth of Mike Pence, the politician, because what you see is now he's got polish, he's got shine, people are taking a liking to him, and he runs for vice president of the student government of his school in Columbus, Indiana. He loses. Uh, the next year he runs for president of the student government. He wins. He really, that's kind of the first taste of politics
1: for him. He graduates high school and goes to college to Hanover, Indiana's oldest private college a small school affiliated with the Presbyterian Church, situated on a few hundred acres overlooking the Ohio River. And he's in a
2: fraternity. It's the Fijis, the Phi Gamma Deltas. And there's a senior, and this is not like, a, it's not like Animal House exactly. It's more like, I don't know if you'd call it a scholarly. Um, they're kind of more, a little more nerdy um, as, as fraternities
1: go. The leader of the frat wasn't a lovable partying scamp trying to protect the frat from a draconian dean with a crazy scheme but rather a man named John Gables. And John had something Pence wanted. Bling.
0: So I'll never forget one of, the, one of the fellows who's now a pastor up in Indianapolis and still a close friend of mine, who was talking to me about matters of faith and my resistance to that. I went up to him and I said, you know, I've decided to go ahead and say I'm a Christian and do the Christian thing, right? so i told him i said i want to get one of those crosses you wear those look good i pestered him about it more than once and i'll never forget the day i said hey don't i was you know hey man you know i'm gonna go in with that christian thing now so get me that number i want to call and get that cross like yours and he turned to me he turned to me and said words that impacted my life like a meteor strike (laughs) and he doesn't even remember saying it to this day He turned to me and he said mike remember you got to wear it in your heart before you wear it around your neck
1: it was this message that you must feel and respect the faith before you can show you have it that sent pence on his religious journey a journey that took him to a christian music festival in kentucky it's basically it's hippie jesus woodstock it's the christian rock version of
2: woodstock from the 70s and They have these things, they have these altar calls, they call them. There's mass conversions. They try to win people to Christ, kind of like a cross between a tent revival and Woodstock. And I'll tell you that I've heard Pence give multiple different versions of this story. Sometimes he is called to the stage, and that's where he has this conversion. Other times he's off alone in the rain,
1: and that's where he feels his personal experience with Christ. Either way, he feels the music and fully accepts himself as a born-again evangelical Christian. There's a lot missing to that story. That's definitely something I, I would like to know more about.
2: They guard it. I'll tell you, man, they guard his religion fiercely.
3: Well, conservative evangelicals believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God, that an evangelical is reborn in their salvation in Jesus Christ when they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior.
1: That was Sarah Posner, a renowned journalist covering religion, politics, extremism. She's got an upcoming book called Unholy Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump.
3: The American version of evangelicalism has been spread around the world through evangelizing and televangelism in particular, and the sale of books by American evangelists and so on. It is a uniquely American phenomenon where it combines both this intense focus on the claim that America was founded as a Christian nation, that as a Christian nation, we should not allow things like abortion or same-sex marriage, and that as a Christian nation, we should be governed by these quote-unquote biblical or Christian principles. This is something that is a uniquely American way of framing both the country's founding and the country's future. In the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was a very deliberate effort to organize white evangelicals into conservative politics. And a lot of people think that it was triggered primarily by the 1973 Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade legalizing abortion. But it really had many other Impetuses as well, including school desegregation and the government effort to ensure that private schools, including Christian schools, that were formed in the wake of school desegregation, were not essentially segregated as as well as public schools. It had to do also with the Supreme Court striking down mandatory school prayer and Bible reading as unconstitutional in the early 1960s. So there were a lot of different factors that led to Republican operatives in Washington deliberately reaching out to white evangelicals to bring them into a coalition with Catholics who were already opposed to abortion, right? But that was not really a stance that had taken hold in white evangelical America in the early 1970s. But sort of pulling on all these various strings, they brought white evangelicals into the Republican fold, organized them particularly for Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential election. And since that election, when the religious right was seen as a critical feature of Reagan's base and of his ability to get elected and then reelected.
1: This is the exact time that Mike Pence, then a Democrat who had volunteered with the local Democratic Party in 1976 and would vote for Jimmy Carter in 1980, is transforming into an evangelical. So in November of 1980, he votes
2: for the evangelical running for president. Who's the evangelical running for president? It's not Ronald Reagan. It's Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is a practicing evangelical, but the Christian right, led by Jerry Falwell, they don't like him. They feel like he buckled on support for Israel. They just don't support him. What they're really looking for, and this is really the difference between practicing evangelicals and the Christian right, I think, is they're looking for a conservative warrior. They're not looking for somebody
1: who's a practitioner, which is why they go with Ronald Reagan. Pence went to college and came out a completely different person. As he says, Christian conservative and Republican. But he's not yet fully formed. He gets into law school at Indiana University,
2: moves up to Indianapolis from, uh, from Hanover, and he's going to the Catholic Church right down the street. Now, this is a liberal Catholic church, St. Thomas Aquinas. It's a Vatican II church, very like where a lot of the Democrats in the city go. And uh, he sees a lady playing guitar there, Karen Sue Batten. And he is just enthralled. He gets her number, calls her up, asks her on a date. They start dating, he proposes to her after about a year. They get married in 1985 in a a church over near the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. This is another formative moment in his career. This is the political conversion. This is what takes him from being a guy who just talks about politics with his buddies to being a guy who's running for office. And things start to happen rapidly after they they get married. 1986, he joins the local Republican group. He's a precinct committee man. He's a foot soldier in the Republican machine in Indianapolis. In 1987, he starts
1: running for Congress. He loses that first race and a second one and goes through a few minor scandals. You know, using campaign money for personal expenses. Yawn, and putting out an ad where a guy in a turban speaking in a thick accent thanks his opponent for upping foreign oil purchases. Double yawn. Here in 2020, we call that kind of stuff Wednesday. After the two losses, he gets a radio show. He was a
2: radio show host uh, for a long time. He would say Rush Limbaugh and Decaf, although that doesn't really quite capture him. He was just a, he was a call-in host. According to my sources, his radio tapes are under lock and key with his old chief of staff. I was able to get a hold of three of them, three shows. They're pretty interesting, pretty low-key, but the rest of them are, to the extent they exist, are with his old chief of staff, who's now a lobbyist, his man named Bill Smith.
1: He was on the radio for a decade. That's a lot of missing tape. But while the radio tapes aren't available, the op-eds Pence wrote for its associated blog sure are. Like one where he accused the Disney musical Mulan, the one where Eddie Murphy plays a talking dragon, of being liberal propaganda for giving women a greater role in the military. For those who have not yet been victimized by the McDonald's-induced hysteria over this film, Mulan is a fictional account of a delicate girl of the same name who surreptitiously takes her father's place in the Chinese army in one of their ancient wars against the Huns. He continued, Obviously, this is Walt Disney's attempt to add childhood expectation to the cultural debate over the role of women in the military. I suspect that some mischievous liberal at Disney assumes that Mulan's story will cause a quiet change in the next generation's attitude about women in combat. And they might just be right. Pence was on the radio for 10 years. Hoosiers got to know Pence, and Pence got to know them. There's a couple things that happen. So yeah,
2: he's building out his name identification across the state, and that's really helpful politically. And he doesn't, in in this moment, he doesn't know if he's going to run again or not. The other thing that's going on is he's also developing his political antenna. He's taking phone calls from
1: listeners three hours a day, six days a week. So... After 10 years rocking the Hoosier airwaves with hot takes in the year 2000, at the dawn of the millennium, Mike Pence has an opportunity to run for Congress again. The current rep is running for governor and supports Pence taking his seat. But first, he has to convince his wife, Karen.
2: Karen Pence is really a a supreme part of the, the political power behind Mike Pence. You know, his friends will, will tell you that she's the one who gives him a lot of sense of purpose, put, put some direction on him. He knows that he needs to work on Karen to get, get her to a yes. Um, and he, had, he enlists one of his buddies to actually lobby her and tell, tell, him, tell her what a, what a great idea it would be that their you know, their kids had a parent who was a, an important congressman and how great it would be for the entire family. And, you know, you know, Mike's wanted this a very long time and Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of cajoling that goes on. Um, finally are riding horseback and they, they love riding horseback. They would do this in Indiana, um, not not far from Columbus. Um, and they go out on a ride and they see these two red tailed hawks soaring up uh, uh, above a plateau and Karen looks over at him and she says, okay, we're going to make this run. We're going to do this. And that's how we're going to do this. We're not flapping our wings this time. We're going to sail. We're going to soar on the wind, just as as God intends it. That's their sign from God. Um, You know, I've had some people tell me they think that's corny. Um, They don't believe it. I believe it.
1: I take their faith to be quite real. And the birds were right. Hence runs. And this time he wins. So what happens is that
2: it's not just that they're gliding with the help of God, they're also gliding with the help of some powerful Republican donors who are, you know, clearing the field for them. And it is a pretty easy race uh, for them. <laughs> there's, no, there's not really any flapping of the wings in, in
1: 2000 for them, they do, they, they're on a glide path to Washington. The Pence's didn't only have God and birds on their side. They had something that in American politics may be even more powerful, wealthy donors we'll get back to money. But let's look at Pence's time in Congress and the principles that guided him. There was great stuff like this from the House floor.
0: Mr. Speaker, despite the national media's best efforts to minimize the news, I am here to report, as the United States military confirmed in Iraq on Monday, weapons of mass destruction have been found in Iraq.
1: Pence voted for and supported the war in Iraq. But he mostly focused on that Christian conservatism I talked about earlier.
3: He became a very um, well-known promoter of extremely conservative policies while serving in the House. Um, For example, um, defunding Planned Parenthood, supporting abstinence-only sex education, opposing LGBT rights.
1: Remember that? About defunding Planned Parenthood? it comes back later. Pence obviously wasn't the only man in Congress who'd rather live in a democratic Christian theocracy, if that's even possible.
3: Christianity in America has been folded into our politics in a way that makes it seem like a mainstream position. I would see it as a a very right-wing position that America should be governed by quote unquote Christian principles, or that America was founded as a quote unquote Christian nation. It is kind of like the mainstream of the Republican Party to believe that. Like it's pretty much heretical for a Republican to deny that sort of framing of what America is and that America is a Christian nation and the founders intended it as a Christian nation. But for anyone who believes that America is a pluralistic, secular democracy, that's obviously a very extreme position to take. At the same time, you know we're in a place right now in our politics where this is the mainstream of one of the two political parties. And because it is the mainstream of one of the two political parties, the way the media covers it as a mainstream position, even though it's not really a middle-of-the-road position to take.
1: In Mike Pence, the Christian right has reached the office of the vice president. But Pence is not alone, and the Christian right has been organizing for decades.
3: They amassed political power through nuts and bolts political organization, for one thing, and then having a very well-funded network, not just of churches, but of other types of religious organizations. They're sometimes called parachurch organizations. They've very effectively used media particularly radio and television. And so they've created a subculture where their evangelicalism is tied together with Republican politics. And so they've been very savvy about it. It's not like it just happened by happenstance. They've been very savvy about reinforcing the idea that um, what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be an American very much includes or requires your belief that America is a Christian nation, that it should be governed by Christian principles, that you should oppose abortion and, and same-sex marriage or, in their terms, protect the sanctity of marriage. And so this is not a network of organizations and organizers that popped out of nowhere. This has been planned and funded and carried out for many decades.
1: Obviously, people are entitled to practice religions, or not. That's part of why America exists, religious freedom. But the type of religious freedom the religious right envisions is one that imposes Christianity on government and politics. Religion is a personal choice, personal business. But Mike Pence's religion is very much America's business. I mean, look, he applies his faith to his politics, which is why we need to
2: understand it. If he kept his faith separate from his politics and kind of hit it off somewhere else and they didn't really you know, make decisions based off of it, I think you can make a good argument that maybe we shouldn't be looking into it. But this is a guy who, like the Christian right, is making decisions based off of his religion and based off his faith, in addition to the political
1: calculus. The religious right has had allies throughout all of this, powerful allies one could say, all-powerful.
3: The Christian right and the, let's call them the anti-regulatory, anti-tax right, you know, so the Koch brothers, Grover Norquist, that sort of world, have always been in coalition with each other. Conservatives like to talk about this as the the three-legged stool of conservatism. Faith, freedom, and foreign policy is the third leg. And I think they've been able to fit that anti-regulatory view. They've been able to fit that in with the Christian right's more generalized um, antipathy to government interference. Like they, So they see the separation of church and state as like government interference in their ability to freely practice their religion. And so they've kind of tied that together with the government shouldn't tax you or regulate you. So that has fit together pretty well for many years of the conservative movement. The
1: Koch network showed an interest in Pence. He got invited to his first Koch seminar in 2009. It's basically an event where politicians come to court big money donors. Jane Mayer, one of the best reporters on the Cokes, reported on all the details. Mayer reports Pence had to do the Kochs a favor before he'd get invited, and he did. There was a cap and trade bill floating around that would have added a fine to carbon pollution. It would have cost the Cokes a lot of money. Pence helped kill it in speeches and behind the scenes, lobbying his fellow reps to pledge against it using charts and language tracing back to the Koch network. Let's debate
0: climate change. Let's debate the science. Let's debate the solutions for achieving carbon dioxide reductions and particulates. But let's also debate the cost. Let's allow the American people to count the cost. Before this, Congress considers a massive national energy tax that could change our economy forever and... And and essentially amounts to an economic declaration of war on the
1: Midwest by liberals here in Washington, D.C. The bill does pass the House, but not the Senate. Either way, Pence is invited to that Koch seminar in 2009. He becomes a Koch favorite, taking millions from them over the years. So, I want to talk about what happens when these two powerful forces, the Christian right and powerful conservative donors, aren't in agreement. What happens when they go head to head? Let's fast forward a bit to Pence's governorship. After a few terms in Congress, he runs for governor of Indiana and wins. Let's talk about
3: RIFRA. RIFRA stands for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It was first enacted by Congress on a bipartisan basis in 1993. It came as the result of a Supreme Court case which held that the pre exercise clause which is a clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution, which protects your religious liberty, did not protect the religious rights of a person who used peyote as part of like a religious ceremony when he was denied unemployment compensation because he had used drugs. And people viewed that case as very dangerous for minority religions who might have these Ceremonial requirements as part of their religious practice and might be discriminated against in the application of generally applicable laws, like under what circumstances can you be denied unemployment insurance? And so that is how RIFRA, the federal RIFRA, actually came about because it was intended to protect people of minority religions. Subsequently, it was used by the Christian right to claim that generally applicable laws like, for example, the Affordable Care Act contraception requirement infringed on their religious liberty by requiring them to cover contraception, contraception in violation of their religious freedom.
2: One of the things that Mike Pence becomes famous for is in 2015, he supports a thing called a religious freedom measure. Uh, it's opposing gay marriage. Now, gay marriage is base—it's basically about to become legal at that point. It's just a few months before the Supreme Court will make it legal across the country. Um, and he takes a stance where he has been backing away from social issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, kind of the hot button issues that used to define him previously in his career, because he's been trying to win the support of big Republican donors, big money donors, who are the people who make presidential campaigns happen. Uh, People like Sheldon Adelson, the Koch brothers, the Mercers, who we now know have a better idea of since Trump's been in office. In particular, for Mike Pence, it was Paul Singer, and he was vacillating between trying to support the donors and and move away from those social hot button issues versus whether he's going to please his Christian right base. And he ultimately sides with the Christian right base. It blows up in his face spectacularly In the, on the national scene. He gets basically painted as the face of anti-gay bigotry in this country. And ironically, It actually put him in a position to where he could become Donald Trump's running mate.
1: Rifra almost destroyed Pence's career. And had he not been selected as Trump's running mate, Pence would have faced a tough gubernatorial race. But he had to protect his religious values, his belief that a marriage is between a man and a woman, and businesses should be allowed to discriminate thusly. In this struggle to choose between pleasing God and pleasing donors, who would win? What was the thing that made him back down
2: and on it eventually? I never knew this, and actually this, is, this baffled everybody except for the the handful of advisors who knew about this. It's a phone call from a man named Paul Singer, billionaire, mega-donor. Paul Singer's son is gay. He's come out maybe like 2012, 2013. Calls up Mike Pence, and I, I should tell you that Paul Singer's people flatly deny this. I I'll be honest with you, I don't believe them because I have better sources than... <laughs> I trust my sources on this, calls up Mike Pence and says, you're not getting any money from me unless you back down on this religious freedom fight. Back down. And Mike Pence backs
1: down. Mike Pence backs down. Picture Mike Pence like an old cartoon has a little guy on each of his shoulders, a little angel, the moral godly side, and a little devil, the amoral selfish side. The little devil tells him that if he gives up his values, he'll have the support he needs to further his political aspirations. The little angel is telling him to allow businesses to discriminate against millions of Americans. Okay, it's not a perfect metaphor, but either way, the little devil wins. Money is more powerful than God. Here's an ad. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from now this, where we examine power by looking at the stories of people who have it. Is there someone you want us to do an episode on, or better yet, a political phenomenon that you want to know the originator of? Is there someone you think the media gets wrong? Feel free to hit me up on Twitter or Instagram with episode suggestions at SNMRRW. Back to Mike Pence. I want to briefly get into one important episode from Pence's career that doesn't get a lot of press. Here's an Indiana news station in March 2015.
4: Governor Pence is preparing to declare a public health emergency in a southern Indiana county that's at the center of an HIV outbreak. 72 cases of the illness have been confirmed in Scott County, and Pence says he is working with health officials to find a way to stop the epidemic.
1: But I want to talk about what happened in the days and weeks before Pence declared that state of emergency for the HIV outbreak that affected Austin, Indiana and Scott County. I got in touch with a reporter who has been following this story since day one.
4: I'm Laura Unger. I am an editor and correspondent with Kaiser Health News in their uh, new St. Louis bureau. And I've been a journalist for almost 30 years now. And I've been covering the Austin, Indiana outbreak for five years, so since it happened. I was among the first to to write about it at all and and have been covering it ever since. You got a sense when you went to Austin in 2015 that this was a very troubled place where addiction was a huge problem. Addiction was, was just rampant there. Later, some health officials would tell me about three generations of a family shooting up together, so you'd have maybe a, a teenage child and then the parents and grandparents.
1: Okay, so a needle-based addiction epidemic in the area leads to the spread of HIV because people are sharing needles. Remember, addiction's a disease, not a choice or a personal problem. Many places across America have something called needle exchanges, a way for drug users to obtain clean needles and lower the chance they'll be exposed to HIV. But needle exchanges were banned in Indiana. And, as the Austin epidemic worsened, activists, local doctors, disease specialists, and more implored Pence to lift the ban
4: during this time. Pence actually was discussing the outbreak with with leaders in Scott county, and Dr. William Cook, Austin's only doctor at the time, went out to the meeting where Pence was discussing the outbreak with local leaders and then pulled Pence aside afterwards and said that he would like to see a local response that included a needle exchange. And what he told me that Pence told him was that he would listen to everybody's input on the issue uh, and then he would pray about it.
1: Pray on it. He chose to delay a state of emergency, which would have lifted the ban, to pray on it. A number of studies on the outbreak have since been completed. What did they find? I asked Laura Unger. The Yale School of Public Health found in September 2018 that... The HIV outbreak among people who inject drugs in Austin from 2011 to 2015 could have been avoided if the state's top health and elected officials had acted sooner. What's your take? Is it true that if people had acted sooner, the situation would have turned out differently?
4: Yes, and I've seen that same study. There's wide agreement that earlier action on many levels and preventive action in general could have made a real difference.
1: But there wasn't even prevention in place for a few reasons. One was the budget. As governor, before the outbreak, Pence drastically cut public health spending to some of the lowest levels in the country. Here he is at his State of the State address.
0: And together, we've made Indiana the fiscal envy of the country. We've balanced budgets, funded priorities. We've maintained strong reserves. And still, we were able to pass the largest state tax cut in Indiana history, a win for Indiana taxpayers.
1: It goes even further back in Pence's career.
4: In the Scott County situation, there was a Planned Parenthood that provided HIV testing, but it actually closed in 2013 because of uh, lack of funding. And that became an issue because it was really the nearest place to get tested uh, to Austin, Indiana. When you talk about Gott County, Indiana, or really any rural area of the Midwest or South, like Appalachia, for example, you might have one doctor in the whole town, or you may have folks who have transportation problems and there's no city bus or way for them to, to get to care. You may not have places to get tested for something like HIV. And so that is a theme that I've just seen over and over again in rural areas uh, surrounding the the Midwest.
1: Let's roll back to 2009, the House
0: floor. The time has come to deny any and all federal funding to Planned Parenthood of America. The largest abortion provider in America should not also be the largest recipient of federal funding under Title X. Today, I filed an amendment to block any funds under Title X in the Labor-HHS Appropriations Bill from going to Planned Parenthood again.
1: That was just one of the many times Pence tried to defund Planned Parenthood in his career in Congress. He eventually got a bill through in 2011, cutting tons of funding from Planned Parenthood. That was just two years before the Scott County Planned Parenthood closed. It was the only HIV testing facility in the area of the outbreak. The federal money they had been getting wasn't even legally allowed to be used for abortions. So what's his game? Where is all this heading? When I was
2: covering him when he was governor, I didn't really appreciate just how much he was lining up everything for president. The trips that he was taking to New York to do fundraisers out there, trying to line up people like the Koch brothers. There's a thing that you know, we call the, uh, the Koch primary, right? Where all these governors like Scott Walker, John Kasich, and Mike Pence were running the Koch playbook, cutting taxes, curbing climate change measures, basically everything that the Koch brothers wanted. And the question was, who was going to get their massive network of donors to back them in the 2016 primary?
1: Of course, we know what happened. Pence didn't run, but Donald Trump did, and chose Pence as his vice president.
2: The Karen dynamic really gets into play with Trump, and I think that you've seen that now in a number of ways. Did they think about leaving the ticket in October 2016 during the Access Hollywood weekend? You know, Trump brags about his prowess and molesting women. Yeah, they did kind of think about it. But I think and I write about this in the book, the bigger calculation for them, they weren't really going to leave the ticket. Because you got to remember, all they had to do is the same thing, the same calculation that Mitch McConnell went through. You only had to wait 30 days and then Trump wouldn't be a problem anymore because he was going to lose. Everybody believed that Trump was going to lose. And for the Pences, and this is the important part, for the Pences, that meant that they would be catapulted to the front of the pack for the Republican nomination for 2020. I mean what, what providence, right? That God gives them a chance at running for president just a year after destroying their careers and the gay marriage fight in 2015. I mean, it looked like a gift from God.
1: And the evangelical community that Pence is a part of and bolstered by is also incredibly important in the Trump story.
3: Among white evangelicals, for example, 81% of them voted for Donald Trump in 2016. White evangelicals have stood by Trump throughout the child separation policy and even defended it. So a number of things that Trump does, and also building the wall, it has huge support among white evangelicals. I think a lot of people think of it as... He promised them policy on abortion, LGBT rights, religious freedom, Israel. And so that this was a purely transactional relationship. So that they were like, okay, he's going to do these things. We'll vote for him in exchange for him doing these things. But it's really much, much deeper than that. They really see him as a divine figure who was sent by God at this time in our history to fulfill this calling to save America from these other forces that they view as anti-Christian. Political correctness, multiculturalism, secularism, liberalism, quote-unquote socialism, which really isn't socialism, but they caricature it as socialism. What's really striking, and this is not just like one person I talked to or one story or one anecdote from my reporting, but what's really striking to me is how closely... A lot of the people I meet read their Bible, but not in a way that you might see a scholar of theology read the Bible where they look at different translations and they contextualize it in the context of the historical moment in which it was written. The people I meet read their Bible believing that it's the literal word of God and that it means that they have the ability to sort of proof text it. And define what it means. And so I will talk to people who see in a Bible story that they read a message from God that they should be doing something, that they should get, that they should vote for Trump.
1: No matter what President Trump's personal life, language, or inner voice may be like, in the Trump administration, the religious right has seen their agenda prioritized.
3: Increasingly, uh, Trump is nominating and, and the Republican Senate is confirming judges who uh, share these views of the role of government in religion and the, and the, and the role of religion in government. Uh, Trump has appointed many people to high-level positions who have very strong ties with the Christian right, both you know in their own work history but also ideologically. So people who with those types of ties include Attorney General Bill Barr, who, you know, recently gave a speech uh where he essentially dismissed the idea of a separation of church and state. Um, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, many of Trump's former cabinet officials also have these strong ties. Jeff Sessions, Rick Perry, who was energy secretary until he resigned in the midst of the impeachment investigation. Um, Ben Carson, uh, the HUD secretary. And then in many agencies, uh, people who might be working behind the scenes more than a cabinet secretary, but are political appointees, are carrying out the policy agenda that has long been advocated by the, the Christian right if he were to have another Uh, Vacancy to fill would basically be a very, very different vision of America where religious freedom is just a thing for people who meet certain religious requirements, that there is no church state separation, that the government, which the Christian right envisions as being run by people with a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview, would get to say, you know, okay, we're going to impose this religion. Or this religious view or this religious practice um, on everybody else because the separation of church and state isn't real or was just a fabrication of a liberal Supreme Court that we don't like. And so the judiciary could have the ability to very radically change religion in America and people's rights in that kind of Christianized America.
1: There's still a lot we don't know about the vice president. Even Tom Lobayana, who wrote his biography, couldn't dig everything up. Remember the missing radio tapes? As long as I've covered Mike Pence, he has been a master at
2: uh, at eluding discovery. And that was really something that I worked really hard on in this book, trying to trying to pin down who this guy is because he is a front runner for
1: 2024. Mike Pence always describes himself as a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican, in that order. But looking to his past shows something different. Strategy and ambition. Opportunism and power grabbing. And understanding that the most important thing in politics is money and the support of those who have it. Let's go back to 2010. Then Governor Pence talking about the power of the presidency. Isn't it amazing, given the
0: great and momentous nature of the office, that those who seek it seldom pause to consider what they are seeking. Rather, unconstrained by principle or reflection, there seems to be a mad rush towards something that once its powers are seized, the new president can wield it as an instrument with which to transform the nation and the people
1: according to his highest aspirations. Pence might just realize those aspirations. What would a Pence presidency look like? It's Pence who brought the coax, not God, into the Trump White House. But there's no doubt Pence would bring God into the Pence White House and into American democracy. Should we take this seriously? How would a President Pence transform the nation? I asked Sarah Posner.
3: What they should know is they should take very seriously when these politicians talk about religious freedom or Christianity or that Christianity is under attack, or that the separation of church and state is a myth, or that there is no wall of separation. They should take this extremely seriously. This is not just talk. Someone like Mike Pence means it. He means it. He really believes there should be no separation of church and state. And so what does that mean for the future of America if that view of how the government and religion should interact with each other, that that the government should be permitted to impose this particular brand of religion on everybody else.
1: Mike Pence is an early favorite for 2024. We've told you about Mike Pence, Tom Cotton, and Mike Pompeo, all men who could be competing for the White House. But those three have something else in common. They're all men who've been made by billionaire donor Charles Koch, whose net worth following the death of his brother, David, may be well over $100 billion. Charles controls Koch Industries, the second largest privately held company in the United States, which consistently generates annual revenue of over $100 billion. On the final episode of this season of Who Is, one of the big fish, the power player pulling the strings, Charles Koch. Next week. A sincere thank you to our guests. Tom Lobianco is the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House, and has worked for CNN, Vanity Fair, and the Associated Press. Sarah Posner is a reporting fellow at Type Investigations, where she covers the religious right, white nationalism, and more. She's got a new book coming out, Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Laura Unger, a Midwest editor and correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Unger recently returned to Austin, Indiana, for a look at how the city has recovered and to evaluate how rural America remains at risk of experiencing similar epidemics for Kaiser Health News and NPR. Her extensive coverage of Austin may be found at courier-journal.com. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indridat and Will Stanton. Additional writing for PJ Evans. Our director this episode was Julia Hoff. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, and Margot Wall. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, Nancy Hahn, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Reno, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell your friends to check us out.